Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. It's the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this Monday morning, the 4th of November, 2019. Uh, For those of you who know that I just spent the entirety of my last week at uh, at a children's hospital with my stepson, Matthew, um, but if you if you follow me on social media, you know that the first day of that experience was uh, waiting and waiting and waiting for him to be worked into a surgical rotation. And uh, and so, you know, you stop allowing them to eat the night before after dinner and he's 14. So by morning, you know, he's hungry for breakfast and you have to explain that we're not having breakfast, um, but we're being worked into into surgery. So, you know, it won't be that long. Well, uh, breakfast time came and went, lunchtime came and went, <clears throat> dinner time nearly came and went uh, before we got worked in, actually at the very end of the surgical day. Uh, Matthew was ravenous. And uh, in a spirit of solidarity, I, I didn't choose to eat or drink anything that day either because he couldn't. And let me tell you, I was not only hungry, I was really thirsty. Um, and when we talk about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we do so uh, oftentimes in this spirit of such abundance that we haven't actually had the gnawing in the pit of our stomach, and we haven't actually had our tongue stick to the roof of our mouth for real hunger or real, or real thirst, because we live in a nation of such overwhelming abundance. But not everyone around the world um, hears, hears the call to hunger and thirst for righteousness the same way we do. They hear it out of real hunger, real physical hunger, and real desperate um, thirst. And one of the people who's on the forefront of that conversation about the 815 million people around the world who live in hunger every single day uh, is Jenny Dyer. You have uh, heard her here on the program before. She came a couple of years ago to share with us about the Mother and Child Project, uh, a book that she um, that she wrote in, I think, 2015, helping us to raise our voices for health and hope around the world. She's also been with us to talk about efforts at the 2030 Collaborative, uh, which is the organization she now runs. You may also remember her as the former director of Hope for Healing Hands. Uh, And so she is back, and she and I, right after a brief break, she and I are going to talk about a new book, and it's more than a book. It's really a handbook. It's an invitation. It's called The End of Hunger, Renewed Hope for Feeding the World. The End of Hunger, up next with Jenny Dyer. Joining me now uh, is Jenny Dyer. You can find her at the 2030 Collaborative. Jenny, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sorry I missed the book launch at um, Parnassus this week, but I was at 
Uh, I was at the hospital with Matthew, so I apologize for that. But thank you for the book and thank you for being here today. Um, We're halfway there. When I say we're halfway there, what relevance does that have to a conversation about the end of hunger? Well, you know what? Therein lies the optimism, right, Um, to end hunger um, as a real possibility during our lifetime. Um, You know, uh, over the last 25 years, we as a nation, the U.S., has led the world in global health and development. And in doing so, one of the things we've been able to lead the world in doing is having the number of people who live with hunger. In 1990, about 24% of the entire world lived with hunger. And today it is about 12, 12 to 13%. So we've been able to have the number of people during this, this time frame. We've been able to do about the same, during the same time frame. we've been able to have the number of people who live in extreme poverty as well. So we know how to tackle poverty. We know how to tackle hunger. <clears throat> we know how to tackle um, disease. We've been able to have the number of people with HIV, TB, malaria, those um, mothers who die from maternal mortality, um, and children who die under the age of five. All of those numbers have been cut in half. So we, we have the science, we have the systems, we have the infrastructure. We just need to have the continued political will to continue this U.S. leadership um, to end hunger by 2030. So we just, uh, you will appreciate that we've had Mark um, uh, lag on on three times. We have talked about bringing an end to AIDS. We have talked about bringing an end to malaria. And we have talked about bringing an end to tuberculosis. And so I know that um, uh, I know that, that is a part of this conversation as well. I'm going to read a sentence from the introduction. And again, if you're listening, the book that we're discussing is The End of Hunger, Renewed Hope for Feeding the World. There are lots of contributors. Uh, Jenny Dyer is one of two editors, along with uh, Kathleen Falsani. I'm going to read this sentence. Zero hunger is the second of 17 goals, and we can achieve this goal by rethinking how we grow, share, and consume our food on this planet. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, zero hunger is the second of 17 sustainable development goals that the world has gotten together and decided we want to tackle by the t- by 2030. So as you can see, I mean, as the second of the goals, it is absolutely top priority, and it's something we can do um, in nations around the world. But we will have to change the way we're doing things. I mean, we just talked about how we were able to have the number of people who are living with hunger, and we kind of think of that as like the low-hanging fruit. The next decade is going to be a little bit more complicated to manage um, hunger and food security. Uh, and, and you just named some of those reasons, some of the way we, we consume food. <clears throat> a couple things, a couple complications with hunger are both the rise of kind of climate change and how the shifts in weather are impacting um, the growth of food. And the other thing is conflict. Um, conflict in nations um, really is the catalyst for famine. So getting kind of to managing how we're going to grow food and, and um, manage the distribution of food, and then also getting at the root of famine, which is um, r- really, you know, enhancing peace across nations. Those are two big issues we're going to have to solve if we want to move forward to, to zero hunger by 2030. Jenny, for, for people who are listening who are students of the Bible, um, you know, we recognize the reality of famine um, as something that has been 
uh, a persistent plague across human history. Uh, I know that in conversations that I've had in the past with particularly members of Congress who really had these extraordinarily eye-opening experiences when they traveled abroad on behalf of the United States and found themselves in places where people were dying of hunger. And it was the first time they'd ever encountered such a thing. When we talk about um, food insecurity here in the United States, we're often not talking about people actually dying of hunger. We're talking about people who are eating things that are not very good for them. Um, Describe to us places where when we talk about we talk about the kind of extreme hunger we're talking about and we talk about famine when we talk about people actually dying of hunger you know i, I take us there take us there tell us a story yeah i mean the, this is these are the difficult stories these are difficult to to understand particularly if if you haven't traveled to a developing nation um you know right now i mean you could google probably some images in yemen Um, of children who are literally dying of starvation. Um, You know, we're talking about acute malnutrition here, um, sometimes chronic, sometimes, um, sometimes, sometimes not um, due to the situation. We're talking about wasting, Um, you know, there's a whole language around hunger and nutrition, but these children and these people literally are, literally are wasting away, hence the word, in a way that we don't see in the United States. There's just too many safety nets in the United States. We see hunger in the United States, definitely. We see poverty in the United States. But there is a more extreme version of this going on, particularly in areas of conflict around the world right now. Um, that's that's just something you have, we haven't experienced um, you know, to this point, I, I wanted to link it back to the work we did and talked about, Carmen, in the Mother and Child Project, because hunger um, really affects disproportionately vulnerable populations, namely mothers and children. Um, and that's one of the wonderful areas the U.S. targets with um, funding for hunger and nutrition. Um, and, and one of the things you see around the world um, versus the U.S., um, is that uh, in those first um, 1,000 days, it is just so important from conception to the child's second birthday to intervene with proper nutrition during the pregnancy and just after the pregnancy for the child's cognitive and physical development. And if we don't intervene with proper nutrition, if, if there's not the resources there, the good micronutrients, the good vitamins, the folic acid, the breastfeeding, um, the child, it, the, the effects are irreversible. The effects are irreversible cognitively, and you can see that in the brain uh, with scans, and the effects are irreversible physically. They will never reach um, the right stature. Um, the, the effects are irreversible also. If you look at longitudinal studies, they don't, uh, the children don't stay in school um, as long as children who have proper nutrition, and, and thusly, they don't get the same kinds of jobs afterwards. If they have proper nutrition, they have a, a 5 to 50% chance of, of escaping the cycles of poverty. So nutrition is, is really a linchpin in developing nations, which is a little different than when we talk about food security in the United States, to move a mom and a child, a family, a community, a society, even a nation out of poverty because it's so critical to um, ending extreme poverty. 
So it's 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 really something we need to relook at as a nation as a priority as we talk about global health and development if we want to tackle the various other pieces of the system of global health and development. All right, I, my conversation partner is Jenny Dyer. We're talking about the end of hunger, which is a new book. Uh, the subtitle "Renewed Hope for Feeding the World," but we're also talking about. The first thousand days, which is something that I actually wrote in my notes, I'm so glad you brought that up as well. Um, and we're and it's a conversation about climate. It's a conversation um, about our responsibility to live more simply that other people may simply live. It's a conversation about how much we waste um, versus the reality that people are literally wasting away from hunger around the world. So this is a conversation for all of us and for each of us as Christians in the culture today, and we will return to it in just a moment. We'll be right back. All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Jenny Dyer. We are talking about The End of Hunger. It, it's an excellent new book. It has lots of contributors. Uh, Jenny is one of two editors of the book. Um, you can find it everywhere books are sold. The End of Hunger, Renewed Hope for Feeding the World. Jenny, I'm wondering, if is there one website we're sending people to? Is it is it 2030collaborative.com? Is that the best place to send people to get all kinds of information about what we're talking about today? 2030collaborative2030collaborative.com. And then we have a page, The End of Hunger, there that you can go to and you can read about the authors and you can read about the book and you can read about the facts about hunger and nutrition. Um, and you can learn about where to get the book. So, yes, that's yeah. a great. I love that. Okay. So, one of the things if people, you know, that people are going to be frustrated by, and I'm just going to go ahead and confess this. I'm sure you're frustrated by it as well. Um, when I read the um, contribution from former Senator Bob Corker, um, which is towards the end of the book in uh, in part three, A Way Forward, you know, he, yeah. he talks about because of the rules related to how the U.S. distributes food aid. And again, we want to celebrate that uh, Americans are tremendously generous. We We give a lot of food aid around the world. But when I read this sentence, I will tell you that the top of my head like burns with fire. Because of these archaic rules, Senator Corker says, only 30 cents of every dollar dedicated for this aid pays for food. The rest goes to shipping, handling, and other overhead costs. Making matters worse, shipping food from the United States can take two to five months to reach its intended destination. Okay, I just have to pause right there and say, that's just stupid. Like, yeah. hungry people are hungry today. That, that is true. Absolutely. And I was thrilled that Bob took the leadership before he left office for modern, modernizing food aid. And um, in fact, just last week, I'm glad you brought it up. The head of USAID's Food for Peace program spoke with me in Miami to some faith leaders there um, about this exact chapter, um, which he had a huge contribution in. Um, so the good news is that modernizing food aid, the legislation passed. Um, and so we are doing food aid differently. And there's a constant relooking right now at the way we do nutrition, food aid, uh, food security in terms of um, uh, delivering that food and the, the overhead, as you say. I mean, that's a that look, that's going to be a part and parcel of how you, I mean, you have to <laughs> you have to pay for the shipping um, for food aid. There's no way around it. But his point 
um, good point and to the good legislation around it, um, we need to do a much better job. Um, USAID uh, really leads our nation in um, how we do food aid, and they have a wonderful, wonderful new administrator, Mark Green, who's really his um, motto is journey to self-reliance. And he is moving towards real efficiency across all the different global health and development um, areas we're doing, including food aid. So now more than ever is such a great time to really look at how um, truly efficient we actually are in managing hunger and how we're partnering with, say, the World Food Program, which is currently run by David Beasley. David Beasley was the former governor of South Carolina, and he's also a um, real person of faith. Um, and he's, you know, all around the world managing these different crises hand in hand with the U.S. government. So, yes, look, there's going to be flaws in the system. But I think the overwhelming statistics show over the last 25 years, we've learned how to deal with those flaws and we've learned how to be successful with the funding we have. The other thing that most of your listeners and most Americans actually when polled don't understand is that the amount of money our U.S. government gives for um, overall foreign assistance is not 25%, and it's not 10%. We're not tithing. It is less than 1%. So if you actually look at what we're spending on nutrition, it is 1% of 1% of the U.S. budget. It is a fraction of a percent. So it's, you know, the by and large, we are not spending an inordinate amount on foreign assistance. Is there some waste? Yes, but it is really minuscule and what we could really do to end hunger. Right. I want to see much more of that dollar uh, go, you know, go to actual, you know, food. And I uh, I just really appreciated um, the efforts that we do have members of Congress that are really diligently working on this. I appreciated that in the way forward um, part of the book. All right, we are um, we're out of time to talk about this specifically, um, Jenny. Let me just ask one question: Who among all of these contributors and others that you met in this project is there somebody that uh, was new to you, a new voice, a new face in this conversation that you're just kind of excited uh, is is a part of bringing an end to hunger? Oh gosh, this is such a wide collection from Amy Grant to um, Science Mike, uh, from Jeff Sachs to Senator Frost. I mean. Uh, I, honestly, I love all of these these voices. Tony Campolo. I mean, there's, there's just such a wonderful variety of um, emotional pieces and policy pieces that um, come together so well to really tell the story of how we can end hunger together. It's so great. Listeners would also recognize the names of Tony Hall and Sammy Rodriguez um, and, and so many others. It's just an excellent, excellent work. Thank you for drawing it together. Thank you for sharing it with us. It's the end of hunger Go to 2030, that's 2030, 2030 Collaborative uh, in order to find out more. Jenny Dyer, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Absolutely. That's 2030collaborative.com. My goodness. I mean, just uh, here's what stood out to me in all of that. Um, seven years, seven years. Seven, this case has been going on for seven years, and the people who brought the case didn't have standing to bring it. I want you to just consider the chaos that can be created in our lives by people who don't even necessarily have standing to bring chaos, and yet chaos they bring. 
All right, we do not worship a God of chaos, but a God of order, and we worship the God who brings order out of chaos. So if you're confronted by chaos today, um, have hope, put your confidence in the Lord our God, uh, and stand, stand. And when you feel like you can't stand any longer, ask God to stand you. That's my, uh, whew, that's my encouragement today in response to today's breakpoint. Okay, next up, David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. He and I are going to talk about things going on in the Middle East. We're going to talk about things going on in Hong Kong and get a quick update on Brexit. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. There's rarely a good time to be faced with a crisis. And for parents with out-of-control teens, the day-to-day struggle can drain every ounce of emotional energy. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you're dealing with a teen who's caught in the spin cycle, let me give you a few tips for preventing emotional burnout. First, take a break. Spend some time away from the stress. Something as simple as lunch with a friend can leave you feeling energized and refreshed. Second, pull out some old photos or home videos and remember the good old days when things were innocent and fun. Let the memories restore you. And finally, even though you might feel alone, rest assured you are not alone. God knows, and he's not finished with your team. Learn how to get your team back on track. Get instant access to Mark's free parenting course online at freeparentingcourse.com. My name is Bond, James Bond. Okay, joining me again today, Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. And this is uh, a portion of the program where we basically look around the globe and seek to not only see what's happening, but discern uh, maybe what the godly response is in each and every circumstance. So, Dr. Aikman, welcome back. Thank you very much. Very nice to be back, Carmen. Well, it's lovely. Uh, It's lovely to talk with you again. Um, Let's start with the Middle East. Uh, We can talk about Syria. We can talk about Iraq. We can talk about Lebanon. Um, Do we, in fact, have a ceasefire in Syria? Um, And what is the update there in terms of, uh, you know, the status of the people? Right. Are you there? I am. I am. Can you give us an update on, on Syria? Okay, I th- I think we're going to have to um, maybe uh, reconnect with Dr. Aikman. It sounds as if our connection to him has failed. Let me um, let me do a quick update on Hong Kong while Paul is reconnecting um, reconnecting with David. So it was a really chaotic weekend in Hong Kong. I know that uh, we are not often paying attention to what is happening literally halfway around the globe. But over the weekend in Hong Kong, remember, we're we're about in the fifth month of protests, uh, pro-democracy protesters on the streets in Hong Kong, raising concerns, um, desiring for the the communist Chinese government under whom they are, um, you know, under whose sovereignty they uh, they function. So the people of Hong Kong have been protesting now for uh, again, it's it's going on five months. Um, but over the weekend, lots and lots of violence related to these protests. There was a knife attack on protesters at a Hong Kong mall. Um, that ended with uh, not only the attacker being subdued, but uh, one politician being really critically 
injured. The language of genocide is uh, is being used in the conversations now related to both the protesters and the anti-protesters in Hong Kong. That is always a dangerous turn. Um, and and the Chinese Communist Party is now saying, hey, there's a global conspiracy um, and the U.S. is involved as protesters are calling on the U.S. for increased support of their democratic efforts. So just we're going to continue to keep an eye on what is happening in Hong Kong. Um, OK, uh, let's turn uh, back. We've got Dr. David Aikman back on the line. And again, sir, uh, let's give a, give an update on what is happening in Syria. OK, thank you, Carmen. Uh, we got cut off for a brief moment. Well, right. it's a very uncertain situation. At least the ceasefire seems to be holding on the eastern front uh, with the uh, Turkish forces having uh, agreed to a ceasefire with the Kurds. That seems to be reasonably well. But the long-term prognosis of Syria, unfortunately, is not good because the regime, in one sense, has kept many of the warring factions from getting too strong in the country and actually control the um, Islamist forces. But it it is very much under the control of the Russians, who have their own agenda in Syria, which probably involves taking advantage of the oil that Syria still has and which the Americans are now taking over control of the facilities. So um, the American presence there has been changed from working with the Kurds against the uh, forces of ISIS to protecting the actual oil reserves on the other side of the Euphrates. So it's a very complicated situation, and I, I don't see any quick remedy for it. You know, David, in your um, in your experience, which you know goes back some time, how unusual is it for a foreign government like the United States to um, work to protect what I would describe as natural resources that are valuable uh, in a in a war torn in a country torn by civil war, versus seeking to protect the people? Yes, I mean there have been examples of the United States. Uh, protecting um, mineral resources in different parts of the world in different areas. But generally, the United States is not involved in major military actions in those particular areas. Now, of course, the U.S. has been involved in Syria, and obviously uh, it's been involved in trying to uh, bring about ceasefire between Israelis and Palestinians and Israelis and Jordanians and Syrians when there were previous conflicts in between those countries. But I think, on the whole, the U.S. is trying to protect itself from being absolutely sucked into a swamp of unmanageable demands upon its strategic abilities to keep warring parties apart and to preserve the general peace for the ordinary population. Then now we have come to the issue of the resources that were funding ISIS when ISIS had control over huge swaths of Syria. So the American willingness and eagerness indeed to take control of the oil reserves 
is probably a good thing in the long run. So, um, David, I want to read an extended quote from an article in the Wall Street Journal about the situation in Lebanon. And then when we come back from the break, let's turn our attention to what is going on in Lebanon. I'm going to read uh, I'm going to read here from a piece by Robert Nicholson. It's entitled Lebanon's Discontent Has Religious Roots, and it appeared in the Wall Street Journal on uh, on the 31st of October. Uh, He's reminding us that for more than two weeks, Lebanese citizens from every walk of life have taken to the streets demanding social and political reform. Uh, And he goes on to say that part of this is that they're having a real identity crisis. He reminds us that after World War I, the French established Lebanon as a homeland for Christians who had been hiding in the mountains since the advent of Islam, which would have been in uh, in like the 700s. Long famous for its cedar trees, the Phoenicians uh, who used them to build ships for the world's first maritime trading empire. Lebanon always has been a nexus between the Semitic, uh, there we would we would be talking about Israel, heartland, and Greco-Roman world. The distinctive expression of Lebanese Christianity, the Syriac Marianite Church, has an Ara- Aramaic-speaking Eastern Rite affiliated with the Western Sea of Rome. Why, why do I say all that? I say all that because what's going on in Lebanon is critical for those of us who are Christians to understand We need to understand the history of this country in order that we might understand its present and pray with them for a hope-filled future. I'm going to have that conversation up next with David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine, we have ongoing protests in the streets of Lebanon. Um, Dr. Aikman, uh, give us a sense of uh, of what is happening there. I know that they, you know, they're talking about completely restructuring their government, um, but it just seems like total chaos. Well, it does seem like total chaos because large numbers of people in Lebanon from all kinds of sectarian backgrounds, Christian, Sunni, Muslim, and Shia Muslim, have really gotten fed up because the whole state seems to have broke down. Electricity is consistently failing. People can't get water and so forth. And so the demonstration started off with a pan-Lebanese color to them. But when the protesters began demanding an end to the government, which is propped up by the Hezbollah uh, political party, then they were attacked, the demonstrators were attacked by militant Shia Muslim followers of Hezbollah, which introduced a really nasty sectarian element into the whole Lebanese dispute, which had not been there previously in the general um, protests against the government. So that is a new element, and they're going to try to uh, have to deal with that. So we it sounds like we have protests, we have counter-protests, we have riot police, um, we have the United States now uh, withholding all, at least military foreign aid to Lebanon. Um, right. It, it seems like, and we have Israel saying, we don't know whether or not this is a threat or an opportunity. Um, it right. seems to me as if nobody really has a handle on what's happening, nor a sense of what's going to happen next. Well, that's true. And, of course, Lebanon, Lebanon has been a broken state for years. Mm. And 
the introduction of Hezbollah was a reluctant admission by the Saad Hariri government that he could not stay up without support from Hezbollah. But unfortunately, Hezbollah has become increasingly aggressive towards the rest of Lebanon. And the people who are in their crosshairs are, of course, anybody from a Christian militia background. And, uh, you know, a large proportion, not the majority, and certainly not bigger than Hezbollah, are supporters of Christian background in Lebanon. And they feel very threatened by this new development. Okay, and then we could just look uh, just south of Lebanon, and we are in Israel, where um, they still basically have not been able to form a government. That's right, yes. Poor old Israel is in a terrible situation of having a caretaker government uh, with Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, who was the previous Prime Minister, and then unable to find any combination of parties in the Knesset that can have a, a definite majority, a majority in parliament so that they can run the show. And this is costing billions of dollars a month because without decisions being made by the government, um, a lot of things are seriously up in the air. It's a very unfortunate degree, unfortunate uh, moment of political instability for the, for the Israelis. All right. And in the time we have left, I would love for you to uh, comment on uh, what is happening with Brexit and maybe your view of um, the uh, the intrusion of the U.S. president into the conversation. Well, let's start with that first. Um, president Trump is not um, uh, is not bashful about giving his opinions on all kinds of issues. and. One of the things he's been fairly outspoken of is the whole issue of Brexit. And in fact, he supported the decision to leave the EU when the referendum came up and he arrived in Britain to open a golf course in Scotland. And he has been very friendly with not only with Boris Johnson, who is the Conservative Prime Minister, but also with Nigel Farage, who founded the UKIP party and has been one of the most um, strongly voiced um, proponents of the whole Brexit uh, issue. President Trump put his cards on the table when he said he supported Brexit. He wanted to support Johnson and Farage. And now that's considered a very unfortunate element because President Trump is not wildly popular in the UK for various reasons. And the idea that he's being sort of friendly to Johnson and Farage doesn't really help either of these two men to run their campaign. So I I don't think there will be a serious long-term impact, but it's just, uh, it's, it's really clouding the waters of the debates going on in the country. And then we have a we do have a Brexit vote coming up in December. Well, it depends who actually wins the election. I mean, hmm. if the 
Conservatives win the election, and particularly if Boris Johnson gets a sizable majority, or at least a reasonable majority, he will be able to push through the agreement that he negotiated with the EU and that Parliament passed on its first reading, and he will have enough votes to stop the Remainers from sabotaging the whole Brexit issue. But the fact is, there are many, many members of Parliament, both Conservative and Labour, who are guide-in-the-wall Remainers, don't approve of Brexit at all, and are doing and have been doing everything possible to slow the process down. And in the case of the Liberal Democrats, actually to reverse it. So uh, it, it won't be clear until we see the results of the election. Well, in the meantime, over here on the other side of the pond in the uh, great experiment we call America, we uh, are contemplating impeachment. So, you know, you don't have all of the political fun on your side of the pond. Right. Not all not all the political fun. Okay, David Aikman, thank you always. It is such a delight and a joy uh, to um, to just mine the wealth of your uh, of your knowledge uh, across across time and across so many spaces and places. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I, I comment. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. So let us be mindful today that all things are possible with God. Uh, and really without God, anything that's possible is not nearly as much fun as it would be if you were doing it with him. Uh, that is not actually a Bible quote, but uh, maybe that's a Carmenism. Uh, maybe we have, might have to start a list. I don't know why with the option of going with God, why you'd go without him. I mean, that's just kind of my, my I'm sort of wondering along the conversation that we had with Brandon Showalter about the number of people who leave the Christian faith, I, I absolutely find myself wondering, um, and this is going to, you know, see, this is this is where I get myself into trouble. Um, if you actually knew Jesus and you're in love with him and you're living in a relationship with him, and, and through that relationship with Christ, you have this restored relationship with God the Father, and therefore you not only have a right relationship with God, but you're restored to a right relationship with yourself and the opportunity and possibility of restored right, right and righteous relationships with other people. Why in the world would you ever leave that? And so I find myself wondering um, if what people had was an experience of, um, of really not not real Christian faith. Like, and I know that's harsh and hard to say, but if you, if you know Christ and you're in a relationship with him, trust me, you don't want to go anywhere without him. You won't want to be wandering off into the world uh, on your own, under your own power, with your own set of ideas, going your own way, because none of it, none of it compares to the uh, surpassing joy and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, Go with God today. That's going to be my encouragement, my calling, my inspiring uh, word to you. Go with God today. And don't go anywhere today without God. Uh, may the Lord be with you. May, uh, may, may you lift your face unto him in ways that remind you that you are his. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.